you know, the, the forgetting may actually be part of our journey. And so it's not necessarily even something to lament. Like that somehow it's bad that we've forgotten God. You know, it's like God is playing hide and seek with us. There's a lover's game. Last time we talked, we were um, discussing your your last book, the the unteachable lessons, which delved a lot into your your personal life and your personal journey, and and how the gauntlet of life kind of prepares you to receive wisdom and to encounter silence and to embark on the the spiritual path. and And that was an amazing book um, because it it really added a lot of personal nuance, I think, to um, the conversation, which often gets left out. Uh, there's often a lot of like theory and 10,000-foot uh, view of the spiritual path that kind of dominates the conversation. And so, drawing it into personal experience, I think, is really helpful for, for me and for a lot of other people to, to really integrate those concepts into, into our path. I know you've also written the big book of Christian mysticism and a book on Celtic spirituality. And so what drew you to write this book, The the Eternal Heart? Well, since you brought up Unteachable Lessons, I'm going to read one of the very last sentences in the book. Uh, this is right at the very end of the epilogue. I, um, you know, I say... Um, I say, read good books, but then put them down. One of my first prayer teachers used to say, reading about prayer is one of the sneakiest ways we have of actually avoiding praying. Mm. Please keep that in mind. So do your homework. Get to know the mystics and contemplatives of Christianity and of the world. And get to know what the explorers ahead of you have to say about their journey. And here comes the sentence I wanted to underline. But then the time will come when you need to close the book and go on beyond zebra, the allusion to Dr. Seuss there, <laughs> with only your heart as your guide. Mm. So that's how Unteachable Lessons ends. So, so, you're, so you were setting up the next one. <laughs> there you go. It was an Easter egg. What can I say? But, um, although uh, a subconscious Easter egg, because I didn't realize I was doing it until after the book, literally after the book was in print, I was working on Eternal Heart. And I was looking at that someday, probably preparing for an interview. And it was just, you know, it was kind of an, oh my God moment, you know, I have an Easter egg in my own book that I didn't. Subconscious. So yeah, you know, working at that deep level. Yeah. So yeah. So, so in many ways, Eternal Heart picks up where Unteachable Lessons left off. Hmm. But let me go ahead and answer your question directly, because this book in many ways is, is a meditation on a verse from scripture. And this is kind of what I do. You know, you mentioned the big book of Christian mysticism. That book is a meditation on the line that anybody in the contemplative world knows from Karl Rahner, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or will not exist. So, you know, I, I, you know, when you really think about it, that's kind of a ominous, it's a warning, you know? So I, and, and we see it happening where the institutional church is literally imploding. Mm. It, I mean, before our very eyes, especially among younger people. You know, the younger you are, the less likely you want anything to do with the institutional church. So, you know, it's like, okay, what it means to be 
in relationship with the teachings of Jesus is changing radically in our day and age. Mm -hmm. and, and Karl Rahner nailed that. And he said, the key to making those wisdom teachings relevant is the mystical path. So I wrote a book basically trying to unpack that, you know, for myself initially, but then hopefully for other people too. So Eternal Heart, the new book, is really a reflection it began as a reflection on a single verse out of the out of the Jewish scriptures, the Christian Old Testament, uh, in in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's it's verse chapter three, verse eleven, and it goes, uh, "God, Spirit, the Divine, God has made everything beautiful in its time, and has placed eternity in the human heart." Hmm. And I remember the first time I read that, I thought, "That's a bold." promise, statement promise, you know, kind of this anthropological statement that the human heart contains eternity. Mm. And so, of course, I had to go back and look at um, the original Hebrew. And I'm not a, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. You know, I, I know just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> but the word in Hebrew that gets translated as eternal in that verse is olam. And, and many people are familiar with the phrase tikkun olam, which is a Jew, kind of like a Jewish proverbial phrase that part of the mandate of being a spiritual person, being a spiritually alive person, is that we commit to repairing the world. So tikkun olam means repairing the world. And, and the world, not just in the sense of the earth, but in the sense of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. so, so I like to think that olam really means the time-space continuum. Mm -hmm. You know, it really, it, it refers to, to that which has been created out of the love and generosity of the divine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we really look at the original Hebrew word and all that it contains, this verse becomes even more amazing. That God has placed olam in our hearts. God has placed the world, the cosmos, the time-space continuum mm -hmm. in the human heart. And of course, we're not talking about the, the blood pump. Maybe we are, but 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 we're talking about the spiritual dimensions. You know, it's like mm -hmm. the blood pump is the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, that's that's the physical manifestation of the spiritual heart, which of course is really the totality of what it means to be an embodied incarnate being. So, um, so of course, as I reflected deeper on this verse and on really kind of what it is promising us, it got me interested in just the whole idea of you know. The heart. Where? Why is the heart so meaningful? If you think about, there are so many spiritual writers and spiritual books that focus on the heart. Cynthia Bergeau, the heart of centering prayer. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, David Stendhal Rast, gratefulness, the heart of prayer. You know, you you see, you know, uh, there's a, a a Church of England contemplative named Christopher Bryant wrote a book called The Heart and Pilgrimage. So the heart shows up again and again. Uh, Thomas Keating, open mind, open heart. Why is the heart so important? Why don't we talk about the liver, you know, or the spleen? So, um, you know, so I, I just kind of went on this journey, you know. And again, since I write out of the the Christian tradition, my my base camp was the Bible, but you know, as as you anyone who reads the book will see, you know, the Bible in conversation with the mystics and also with uh, wisdom teachers from other traditions as well. Mm -hmm. So I identify uh, eight different passages in the, the Christian Bible, the Jewish and Christian scriptures that speak of gifts that are given to us in our hearts. And, um, and so that's how the book became organized. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And like I say, so I, so each chapter in the book is is a kind of a celebration of one of these gifts. Again, in conversation, scripture, mysticism, and world wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there we go. And so then my editor suggested, you know, well, can you give us kind of a practice? Can you give us some way that the reader can embody this in, mm-hmm. in their lives? So, um, so yeah, each chapter ends with kind of what I call a heart practice to, um, you know, just to help the person who's really trying to live according to their eternal heart. Yeah. Yeah. I love that because as I said, you know, it's, it's so often the case that contemplative spirituality and, and writing and books in that genre can be solely focused on theory. And then it allows us to continue, you know, picking up the next book, picking up the next book, picking up the next book and acquiring all this spiritual knowledge, which only seeks to aggrandize our own spiritual ego and and then we have no capacity to to integrate all that spiritual knowledge into you know actually embodying that and so i definitely think integrating the practices into that is is super helpful and uh one that you didn't mention actually that came to mind as i was as i was reading your book because you you mentioned um the imaginal and uh practices surrounding like the imagination and opening up to the ineffable via the uh, the imaginal realm, and it made me think of Cynthia Bourgeau's recent book, Eye of the Heart, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, you know blows the doors off of a lot of stuff, but and it's it's definitely not for the faint of heart. I, I'll say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, you know I, I don't know Cynthia well, but I do know her, and when it got on my radar that she had this book coming out. I wrote to her and I basically begged her to let me read it in manuscript. Mm-hmm. And, and she, and she was great. She wrote back and she said, well, if you're willing to endorse it, I'll let you. <laughs> so, and well, I endorsed, you know, and I'm like me endorsing Cynthia Bergeau, you know, that's kind of like, you know, Thomas Merton endorsing Jesus, you know, <laughs> and not trying to give Cynthia a Messiah complex, but definitely it's the tail wagging the dog here. But, but I think she wanted somebody coming out of the Christian tradition mm-hmm. to, to praise her book. And it was easy to do because it is a brilliant book. It's definitely a little bit outside of my normal wheelhouse because mm-hmm. I'm not a Gurdjieff, you know, person. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the, you know, she, she does make kind of the Gurdjieff teachings accessible in a broader sense. And, you know, and I certainly all, all through that book could relate what she was saying to the Christian mystical tradition. So, um, so yeah, so um, the, definitely my book was nourished by being able to, to mm. engage with that particular book, Eye of the Heart. So, yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, I was hanging on by my fingernails while reading that book. One of the things that that I love about it is that it kind of brings in the wisdom of the philokalia and seeing the heart as the seat of the intellect, which for, you know, the Greeks meant the eye of the heart, the the seat of our spiritual vision and, and how we perceive creation as a whole, not just our emotions and feelings and you know, uh, subjective kind of um, fanciful notions of of what we think the world looks like, but actually like a an in seeing. You know, it's the it's the organ of spiritual perception, as she says. And um, one of one of the quotes in your book actually really stuck out to me. 
Yeah, you say, our hearts are the chalices in which the wine of divine love has been poured. Uh-huh. And that just jumped off the page to me because see, seeing, seeing the, the divine love as an intoxicant is kind of, you know, it might be risque for, for some people, um, especially recovering Baptists, but, um, <laughs> but, but I think it's important to, to see that, um, that the heart is much more than just that subjective kind of feeling organ, that kind of sappy sentimental love that we characterize it as. Yeah, and you're right. And Cynthia's book and and the entire Orthodox tradition is a very healthy corrective to that. And, you know, I mean, as, as you know, I'm in the middle of promoting the book because this book is being published this month. So I've been doing a number of interviews and I, and I had one interview last week where the person... Um, person went right into why are you writing about the heart who cares about you know the candy and flowers and valentine's day and that kind of stuff and so so i had to really kind of give give the interviewer kind of a crash course in kind of this this more contemplative understanding of the heart which really does have its roots in in kind of jewish anthropology mm-hmm. and um and then as you say it has has really reached kind of this incredible depth of of perception in, in the Orthodox East. So, um, yeah, so I like to say that the heart really is the is what it means to be embodied. Mm-hmm. So, in, in, you know, in a way that, spiritually speaking, the heart is a metaphor. The heart is the metaphor for, for the body, mm-hmm. for being a, a person of flesh and blood. So, so, so it contains it all. It's not just feelings, although it includes feelings, mm-hmm. but it's also intellect. It's also intuition. It's also just, just perception. That, that all of that filters in to what it means to be human, to what it means to be embodied. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then this question becomes then, how does that shape who we are and how we interact with the world in which we, we live? Yeah. So. And you, you, you also say it's, it's easy if, you know, the heart is the organ of spiritual perception and the heart is kind of code for the, the entire full presence of the, of the human being and, and the way that we interact and and perceive god you say it's easy to to forget god's presence because of god's inherent hiddenness so why do you why do you think that is that that there's an inherent hiddenness to god yeah why why is there an inherent hiddenness to god and why is it so easy to forget god's presence well you know i mean different people have offered different uh kind of theories for that some of which are probably more useful than others you know, there's certainly the classical Christian kind of theology of original sin, mm-hmm. this idea that somehow we have chosen to forget mm-hmm. God. Th- th- that, there may be some of that, you know. I mean, Christianity and Buddhism, which are probably the two religions I know the best, you know, both begin with this idea that, that we make bad choices sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and certainly human beings do make bad choices sometimes. So, so I guess you have to leave that on the table. But I also think there is this idea that we're not ready for it. You know, that like we're like we're, we're still we're still larva. If that doesn't freak people out, we're we're you know we're um, as incarnate beings. If we could stare into <clears throat> into the unfiltered face of God, we would probably explode like the mice in rock and roll high school. And um, you know, and I think that um, I love 
being able to give a Ramon solution in an interview. That's just so much fun. But um, usually it's Star Trek or the Grateful Dead, but every now and then the Ramon show. But, um, you know, but, but so, so this reality that, um, that, you know, the, the forgetting may actually be part of our journey. Mm. And so it's not necessarily even something to lament. Yeah. Like it's somehow it's bad that we've forgotten God. You know, it's like God is playing hide and seek with us. There's a lover's game mm. going on here. You know, it's, I, I don't know if you ever saw the movie. I haven't read the book, but the movie, What Dreams May Come mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. with Robin Williams and Annabelle Ciora. And it's, and it's this idea about dying and going to heaven and, you know, working through, again, our brokenness and, you know, and there's kind of a, you know, heaven and hell dynamic and all that. And at the very end, it's like the family is together. They're all in paradise. They're just experiencing love, kind of just immersed in the divine presence. And then the Robin Williams character's name was Chris, you know, obviously Christ figure. Mm. Chris says, "Um, but there's one thing we don't have now. And that is the experience of meeting each other and falling in love. And so the movie ends with kind of this reincarnationist thing. Mm. And he and his beloved come, you know, they fall back into, into human earthly form. And the last scene shows these two little kids meeting. Mm. It's just this lovely moment, you know, and it's like, so, so it's, it's like these eternal souls have forgotten each other. Mm-hmm. And then it gives them the gift of meeting and of falling in love. And so, you know, I guess the question is, does God give us that gift that we have to seek God? We have to, we have to yearn for God. We have to, you know, kiss a few frogs before you find your Prince Charming, you know, <laughs> this kind of thing. And so, so God's hiddenness is actually part of the way God woos us. Mm. Like that God is, you know, I, you know, that there's kind of this classical axiom that the longing we have in our heart for God or for the divine is, evidence of the divine longing for us mm. it's how we experience the divine longing for us is with our own hunger for yeah. the divine. so you know so i you know yeah maybe we we make some boneheaded choices i know i certainly do but i also think there's this this more kind of optimistic idea that it's part of this larger love dance mm-hmm. that we just we just are immersed in and that yes there's maybe some the pain, you know, Tom, Thomas Keating suggests that the original sin, if there is an original sin, but that the original sin is thinking we're separate from God. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, I, I, I can see that, but, but I think it still kind of makes the separation wrong. And I'm not sure that we should do that. I think, I think, you know, the separation is just meant to be explored, maybe overcome, maybe moved through, but, but to kind of appreciate that for for the gifts that it brings us, the gift of longing, the gift of desire, the gift of seeking. Yeah. Julian of Norwich says that seeking is, is one of the, the ways we pray. It's something I talk about in the book, that one of one of the key ways we pray is by seeking God. So um Yeah. Gosh, there's there's so many, so many ways I could go with that. And and I, I actually wanted to mention that I enjoyed seeing, you know, the the Augustine quote in your book because he's kind of untouchable now in a lot of circles because of, you know, original sin and everything. And I personally find it helpful to interpret original sin as that, you know, separation, but but also tempering that with 
with Julian saying that, you know, both the fall and the recovery are, are both the grace of God. And I know you're you're steeped in both Christian and, and Buddhist, but I, I also um, find the, the Vedantic path super informative for, for my Christian path. And one of the concepts that they elucidate is the, the Leela, the, the play of, of Shiva. And, um, Shiva enters the world and forgets, forgets himself so, and plays the part so well. He forgets who he is and then seeks out himself in different objects and has to, you know, has to suffer, has to find out this isn't it. This isn't me. This isn't me until it, you know, draws Shiva back to, himself. That's a, a, a super helpful way to reframe original sin in that way as like a, a libidinal error that's also used for our benefit for, you know, it's, it's all, it's all part of it. Everything belongs. And y- you later in the book say that we can't erase God's image in us, but the likeness can be covered over by our wounds and choices that reject love and so and so that that again is is kind of how i see um the the effect of of sin the effect of seeing that uh or thinking that we are absent or separated from god like thomas keating says the only thing that separates us from god is the thought that we are separated from god and so it's this error in perception that causes us to to seek out god or like gk chesterton um whether in the brothel or the the bookstore, it's it's God that's that sought. How do we view eros, and that desire in this spiritual path? Because for me, I feel like before enlightenment, I guess you could say, or before liberation, or before moksha, like. Eros is what either draws us, you know, away from God or towards God, depending on, you know, if our view is outward or, or inward. Um, but then afterward, we can dive back into Eros and know that the desire for God is God's desire in us and through us. Are you familiar with Van Morrison, the musician? Not super well, but yes. That's to know Van Morrison. Um, especially, you know, I'd say his the first 10 or 15 years. Um, he um and he's and he's on the naughty list because he's an anti-vaxxer, but we will forgive him of this, just like we forgive Augustine for getting it wrong about original sin. <laughs> I mean, you know, one of the things about spiritually minded people is sometimes we don't know how to deal with people that we disagree with. Mm. And I think we have to acknowledge that sometimes I can vehemently disagree with you in this area. And yet there's so much you can teach me in this area. Mm -hmm. And we have to live with that paradox, you know, whether it's St. Augustine or Van Morrison, but, but Morrison, Morrison, I, I think there's certainly something of the mystic in him. I mean, one of his great songs is into the mystic, but, um, but what is fascinating about listening to his music is you never are really sure whether he's singing to God or to a woman, hmm. you know, assuming he's heterosexual. I think all of his partners have been women. So in his songs, I love songs to women, but it's like, or is it a love song to God? 
you know, it, it kind of flows back and forth with this kind of non-dual, mm. you know, the erotic love that he feels towards the woman that he's wooing mm -hmm. is of a piece with that existential yearning for the divine. And of course, that takes me back to um, the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, mm -hmm. and how that book has been, of all the books in the scripture, that that book has been the book most commented on by mm -hmm. the great mystics throughout history. You know, you mentioned the, the theology of image and likeness, and you know, that's not original with me. That comes straight out of the Cistercian tradition, which is the Trappist tradition. So the tradition of Thomas Merton, Thomas Keating, Basil Pennington, you know, the Michael Casey, all those guys, um, you know, women like Gail Fitzpatrick, uh, they, they all are, um, you know, out of that monastic tradition within, within the Catholic Christian world. And, um, and you know, the, the greatest of the, well, now you'd probably say it's Merton, but before Merton, the greatest Cistercian theologian was Bernard of Clairvaux. Mm. And, and, you know, and among more conservative Catholics, Bernard is still number one. But, um, but Bernard, of course, his masterpiece, again, one of the towering masterpieces of Christian mystical writing were his 86 sermons on the Song of Songs. Mm -hmm. and, um, and these sermons, you know, of course, and, and in 86 sermons, he only gets through the first two chapters of the book. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like Lexio Divina. He just digs deep into the text and he just unpacks kind of the mystical meaning mm -hmm. that you find in, um, in, in, in that, that sacred text. So there's this long, long tradition uh, of, um, of kind of seeing the, the non-duality or the non-differentiation between divine love and human love. Mm -hmm. it's, it's even in its most erotic, you know, forms. And, you know, and where I think the takeaway is for us, I, I, I like to think that, you know, that in, the incarnation is like a prism. Mm -hmm. God is light. And so we shine the light of divine love through our prism and it comes out in many colors. Mm -hmm. So there's the love we have for, for country, you know, patriotism, that kind of thing. The love we have for family, for children, you know, tender love, a protective love, the love we have for friends, you know, and, and then of course, the love we have for our lover, you know, filled with desire and even lust. I know lust is a dirty word. I don't think it should be a dirty word because it's lust for life. You know, mm. Eros is the life force. You know, I mean, obviously sexuality doesn't always lead to procreation, but it, you know, it's inherently part of the mm -hmm. sexual act, you know, is, is the, the ability, you know, particularly in a heterosexual context, the ability to, to bring new life forth. So all of that is just mixed together. So that's part of the prism. And I think the reality is, is that when we kind of extrapolate back from our erotic self, our erotic being, mm -hmm. to divine love, we also need to factor in all those other kinds of love. You know, self-giving love, the love that impels a Mother Teresa to care for the dying on the streets of Calcutta. You know, it's, um, and, and, and I mean, Mother Teresa became famous and won the Nobel Prize, so you could say, well, she was in it for the glory. But what about all the other, you know, thousands of women and men and, and other persons who have, um, who have done that kind of work and never gotten an, you know, a drop of glory, you mm -hmm. know, they're doing it, they're doing it for love, for self-giving love. So all these dimensions of love have to factor into 
the pure light that shines through the prism. Mm -hmm. But but again, what that means and where I think the church sometimes gets it wrong is, is this idea, and it goes all the way back, you know, again, to the kind of the Greek mind-body split. And it's just one of the great tragedies, I think, of the Christian story, is that we become afraid of embodied love. We've become mm -hmm. afraid of, of eros. Mm -hmm. and, you know, agape good, eros bad. Mm -hmm. and I think that's just a terrible mistake. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's, it's you know, agape has this, um, Again, this givingness and this this almost sacrificial quality that is so inspiring and that has 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 helped so many people throughout the centuries. But let's be real: erotic love reproduces us. Mm -hmm. it, it brings forth babies. It, it it replenishes the population. So it gives too. And mm -hmm. I think that the church has has underestimated that. And even I mean, even in a gay relationship or a relationship where one or both of the partners are sterile. Eros still brings forth life. It brings forth happiness. It brings mm -hmm. forth bondedness. It makes us better members of the community. Um, you know, my wife and I, you know, are well beyond child rearing, but we're, we're both creatives. I'm a writer. She's, in fact, the shirt that I'm wearing, she created the shirt, gave it to me for Father's Day. I was going to say, I really like that shirt. It's cool. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, well, there's one of a kind, you know, and I've got it. But, um, but the, um, you know, so, and we both had this very clear sense that it is out of our romantic, erotic, you know, husband and wife bond that we are nourished to be creative people that then brings our blessings out to the world. Mm. So, so I wish Christianity had, had a better relationship with Eros. Mm -hmm. I think it would, it would, you know, and, and when I think, you know, back to the people leaving the institution, you know, and when you talk about why people leave the institution, very often the number one reason has to do with, with Christian, Christian teachings about gender and sexuality. Mm -hmm. That's where, where people just can't get beyond it, whether it's the Catholic Church won't, won't ordain women, women, whether it's, you know, how so many Christians are homophobic, you know, I, I mean, there's just a variety of issues there, but it all goes back to that the church doesn't know what to do with gender and, and, and sexuality, which I think emerges out of the church doesn't have a healthy relationship with arrows. Mm -hmm. And again, I think the mystics are you know, can be very helpful there because even working within the dualistic, oftentimes Eros negative context of Christianity, the mystics have still been able to embody that much more Eros positive uh, approach. And so they can be of great help to us today. Yeah, I, that, that kind of leads me to my, my next point, which was I liked seeing a fasting exercise in your in your book, um, and a, a short explanation on asceticism and like the path of purgation, which I, I just put out a um, a course on Insight Timer on you know the threefold path of purgation, illumination, union, and and the longest section is on the, that first stage, purgation, because I felt like it needed so much reconfiguring from what we traditionally conceive of as asceticism and purgation, because to someone who may not be familiar, what we were just talking about, you know, the, the reclaiming of Eros and, you know, and the, the reclaiming of, of sexual relationships and, um, and participating in that kind of tantric aspect of, of life seems like the polar opposite of, asceticism and purgation um but i wanted to to kind of highlight that that was just 
the first stage. Like you're not meant to stay there. You're meant to move through it. And, and eventually you get back to where you can participate in Eros again, knowing that you're, you're participating in Eros from a place of completion, um, not out of a place of lack and, and longing and trying to complete yourself with the other person. Because really, if, if you do that, then, then it's just like C.S. Lewis said, a complicated form of self-hatred. You know, it's, it's trying to fulfill your, self lacking self image with an image or concept of another person and never truly meeting the other person themselves. And yeah. so it's tough because it's so, it's so tangled up and, and it's, it's difficult to talk to people about because it requires sometimes I feel like a two hour conversation to, to untangle the fact that you can, you can say, let's embrace Eros, let's embrace, you know, Tantra, but unless we're, really educated on that it can almost become materialistic in a way uh -huh. like like i saw uh someone recently a, a teacher say something about you know the, the body is is the goal like you are the body which again goes contrary to a thousand different spiritual teachers across traditions that say you know identification with the body is one of the root causes of suffering. And, and so it's just hard to, at least for me, I don't know if you have a better luck uh, in this, but, but moving from the understanding of, you know, the body is something that we shouldn't be identified with, but also not something that we should reject either. Yeah. So it's like a fine line. You know, I, I mean, I spent, uh, a number of years hanging out in the neo-pagan world and you know they're very sex and body positive so <laughs> <laughs> that that was very helpful for me but um you know but returning to christianity when i did you know it, it, you know to be able to again to to read the mystics i mean even you know like the, i was while you were talking i was looking and i couldn't find it but there's this wonderful quotation from a 19th century mystic named coventry patmore who, um, who Evelyn Underhill quotes a lot. He was a poet. He was a Victorian poet. Also, he was Roman Catholic in England in a time when that was kind of, you know, kind of dicey. But, um, but true, a true mystic as well. And, and his mysticism is suffused with this kind of sacred eroticism. Mm. And so it, it's, it's really, really beautiful. But um, I can't find the quote, so too bad. You know, um, if I find it, I'll put it on Twitter or something. But the... Um, the um, the, okay, well, you, you gave me a lot to play with here. Um, let, let's go back to your insight timer piece. You know, if when you read the mystics over the, the centuries, they talk about the purgative way more than any of the others. And I think that there are a couple of reasons. One, you know, it's just like, you know, if you go into, uh, you know, like a cathedral bookstore and you look at the co contemplative prayer section, most of the books are books for beginners. You know, mm -hmm. it's like my book, Answering the Contemplative Call. It's it's Contemplation 101, you know. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, Richard Rohr's Everything Belongs, uh, Cynthia Bergeau's Centered Prayer and Inner Awakening, Thomas Keating's Open Mind, Open Heart. You know, all of these books are really, they're accessible for somebody who has never, never entered into a contemplative practice. Mm -hmm. And it's because there are so many people who are discovering it for the first time. It just, it just makes more sense. I think mystical literature is kind of the same way. You know, it's like, let's start at the beginning. And um, 
you know, so, so that's one piece. But the other piece, I think you, you, you're right on the, the money that we get purgation wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, we get asceticism wrong. Uh, I wasn't familiar with that C.S. Lewis quote. You're going to have to give me the, the the source for it, but that's brilliant. You know that that if you're not careful, asceticism becomes complicated self hatred, mm-hmm. and I, and that's what people reject. I mean, the people who say I want nothing to do with an ascetical spirituality, mm-hmm. they're rejecting something that needs to be rejected. It's just like most atheists; they're rejecting bad images of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm like, hey, I'm with you, man. You know, I don't want that image of God any more than you do. Mm-hmm. You know, but come and hang out with the mystics and find some really exciting images of God that you know that have to do with profound creativity and 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 tikkun olam, building a just world, et cetera, et cetera. Then then it becomes juicy. Mm. But you know, but again, we you know whatever bandwidth we have. I mean, if you've only been exposed to a very toxic image of God, the the logical thing to do is to become an atheist. Mm-hmm. You know? and that's yeah. what a lot of people do. But um, so, you know, so again, back to asceticism, you know, this, this, um, and again, the Cistercians have been so helpful for me. And this idea that, that, that asceticism is meant to be a gift you give to your body, mm-hmm. not the gift of punishment, but the gift of discipline. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's, it's like being an athlete, you know, you, you, you want to be a peak performance, you got to work out. You mm-hmm. got to go to the gym. You know, you got to be out there running and, and bench pressing and doing the things you have to do. You know, that's that, you know, and of course, that's athleticism. The two words are related mm. to be an athlete, to be an seat, an ascetic mm-hmm. is in both cases to be a person of discipline. You know, and again, when we think of asceticism, we think of disciplining the body, you know, with the, the whips and all that. I think that's missing the point. I think at its heart, asceticism really is disciplining the soul, mm-hmm. learning ourselves spiritually, learning practices such as, 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 you know, and again, fasting. Okay. It's, it's, it's denial for the body, but it's not a denial to punish. It's a denial to remember, mm-hmm. a denial to remember what it means to be hungry. I mean, I don't, I live in, in the United States. I'm, I'm a privileged white male in the United States. I don't know what it's like to be hungry. Mm-hmm. And that I'm confessing this because it's nothing I'm particularly proud of. Mm-hmm. It's something, it's just something I benefit from. You know, I mean, how many millions, if not billions of people go to bed hungry every night? Mm-hmm. And, and those of us who, who are the beneficiaries of privilege, we don't know that. Mm-hmm. So asceticism, if nothing else, gets us back in touch with a huge slice of the human condition that our privileges shield us from. Yeah. You know, and, and so I think I think, you know, so it, so it, so it, it factors into into justice, the call to justice. Mm-hmm. It, and again, it factors into prayer, you know, this idea of longing and seeking and desire as being, you know, component parts of the spiritual life. You know, well, get in touch with with physical desire, mm-hmm. get in touch with what it means to be hungry. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 how humbling that is, because when you're hungry, you don't think about anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here you are, you know, it's Lent, you're trying to, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know too many Muslim people, but I know they'll tell you, Ramadan yep. is just this profound period of spiritual growth, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's, and it's, you know, I mean, with Ramadan, you do get to eat every day, you just have to do it before sunrise and after sunset. Mm-hmm. But but still, that means you're going anywhere from, depending on where you are and what time of year it is, you know, eight to 12 or more hours, you know, doing a fast every day for a lunar month. Yeah, that's it tough. Makes, 
different. It, 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 it just opens up your heart. So, um, you know, so I think, you know, I, I, I'm glad you, 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 you took the conversation in this direction because I do think Eros and asceticism do go together, but if they go together, like breathing in and breathing out, and, and, you know, your lungs don't work if you don't do both. Yeah. And so, you know, so to have a spirituality that is profoundly body positive and that, you know, celebrates the body and all of its juicy, messy, stinky, poopy, sexy glory, you know, the, um, and we're not just our bodies, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, when I think, and of course, again, I'm, I'm, I'm grounded in the Christian tradition, which is an incarnational tradition at its best. Christian theology does not reject the body. As we, you and I both know, there are lots of Christian theologies that do, mm-hmm. but I think at its best, it, it never does. But, um, but as you well know, you know, you and I are both interested in Eastern spirituality. There are spiritual traditions all around the world that do have a very harsh attitude mm-hmm. towards the body. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think, again, it's, they're getting it half right. Yeah. You know, it's like we we aren't just our body. If if we just if we just fall into the body and lose all sense of our transcendence or our eternality, then basically it's you know the one who dies with the most toys wins. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we we become materialists, yeah. and and we and and you know we see what that can create. You know, it it it, it can tend towards injustice and it tends towards overconsumption and, and those kinds of issues. So you know, so there has to be this creative tension between loving the body and and loving it enough to be able to discipline it in life-giving ways. Yeah. And like you said, most of the literature that we have on, you know, whether that's purgation or asceticism, like it's it's catered towards beginners because that's who it's for. You know, when you're further along in the path, you don't as much need that kind of instruction. And it starts, at least in, you know, the the Orthodox teaching with the the gross as as the Buddhists would call it the gross body you know um, because we're so catered towards the perception of the gross that we have to start there and from there we move toward the subtle like I mean the 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 Torah and and the law starts with the subtle or starts with the gross as well and then when we get to Jesus he you know turns up the the intensity and says no I tell you if you have even looked on a woman with lust, then it's taking it inward into the more subtle realms of thought and imagination and intellect. And then from there, we can move even more subtly toward the spirit. And I think taking it all the way back to the beginning of our conversation that of God's hiddenness and, and our, our ability to forget God so easily, but I, th- I think that tying in the the aspect of asceticism is that the the key to remembering God is forgetting everything else, and and that's that that's all, just the first step though because it's not like we just remember God and forget everything else forever and we go live in a cave in the Himalayas, but we go back into the world knowing that like you know as the Sufis say that everywhere you turn is the face of God. But if you've never encountered the face of God, then it's it's very difficult to see the face of God everywhere. Yeah. And so it's yeah. it's a moving outward and then back. And and ultimately, at least for me, you know, the the Eros aspect um, 
you know, tying into to, to bhakti yoga, the yoga of loving devotion, Vedantic teachers will tell you that bhakti and jnana, wisdom, which is where, you know, the uh, shared root of, of gnosis comes from, love and wisdom are ultimately, you know, co-terminating paths. They, they both end in the same exact place. And so love and eros is the the engine and the fire that that leads us to knowledge because to truly know something we have to love it and to truly love something we have to know it in that way and and i think via you know eternal heart those gifts that we receive are kind of the the ways that we can perceive god's love and the divine love for us and trace those back to God's being in itself. And, and then we don't necessarily need the, the physical concepts and teachings anymore because, like you also say in there, that the law is then written on our hearts and it's just an expression of our identity as one with the divine. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's even something as simple as like saying grace before meals. You know, you have a child, you have a family. And so you teach your children to say grace before meals. And, you know, there comes a point where you can sit down with the kids and, you know, maybe by now the kids are teenagers, you know, and you sit down and you're, you're hungry and you, you grab the sandwich and the kids are like, are we going to say grace? And it's like a teachable moment. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, can you give thanks for the food? Mm -hmm. That's the point behind saying grace. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, here I am, you know, in my 60s, my wife, or in our 60s, empty nesters, we still say grace before the meals. So there's something about ritual, too. Mm -hmm. You know, ritual has its own, its own pleasure. But with the understanding that the point is not I recite these words and somehow it's a magic formula and God blesses the foods and he wouldn't bless the food otherwise. I recite those words to remind myself mm -hmm. to eat out of a place of gratitude. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so, you know, and I mean, any spiritual practice, whether it's the sacraments, you know, an ascetical practice, you know, even centering prayer, you know, Lectio Divina, any of these kinds of things there, you know, the practice is there to remind us of something. Mm. And to the extent that we can remember that without the practice, the practice is not necessary. Yeah. Having said that, if we forget the practice, we're at greater risk of forgetting the lesson. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's helpful to continue the practice. So, you know, so it's, 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 and I don't know if you can see my hands, but I'm actually, I'm, I'm making the figure eight with this. Ah, yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it's like you've got the practice and then you've got the, the heart of the practice. Mm. And, and in a way you need the book. And, you know, and I, I've, I've just been loving this, the, the, the figure eight on, on the cover of the book, which, um, because with every interview, I find I'm learning more about this. You know, eros and asceticism. There's the figure eight again, and mm -hmm. we need both. You yeah. know, a love of God, love of neighbor. Um, you know, breathing in, breathing out. You know, it's it's. I think we have a tendency. Our, our language is linear, mm -hmm. so we so we have a tendency to want to squish 
our, our understanding of spirituality into kind of this linear model. But I think we need, we need a model that is more cyclical, but not just a circle, but it's almost, again, like that figure eight, the circle mm. that circles back on itself, because it just, just to remind ourselves that, again, you know, it's not a paradox to say, you know, spirituality is body positive and spirituality calls us into asceticism. But it is that kind of figure eight dynamic of you need both and maybe not at the same time, hmm. but each one supports the other. Yeah. You, know, you, you need to go into your inner room and pray to, to God in secret, but you also need to be washing one another's feet. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's another one of these figure eight dynamics. If you're not doing your inner room work, you'll probably stop washing the feet or you'll keep washing the feet for all the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? And so, but if you aren't washing your feet, then what business do you have in the inner room anyways? Mm -hmm. You know, so, um, so it's, it's, you know, they, they, on the surface, they seem to be to two totally different things, but you dig in and you realize they absolutely rely on and depend on each other. Yeah. That's so good. I, I love the cover by the way, but I didn't, I didn't even, as we were talking, I, I didn't even put that together, the whole Mobius strip kind of figure eight uh, a deal bringing together those, you know, at first blush disparate concepts of, you know, of action and contemplation of, of bhakti and yana of, you know, serving and, uh, and praying. So yeah, that's brilliant. I love that. To keep it practical, do you have any uh, concrete practices that you can encourage for someone that are low cost of entry, I guess, uh, easy to, to take with them anywhere? Well, we've already talked about fasting. Mm -hmm. So, so why don't we just, why don't we just touch on that a little bit more? And let me just, you know, part of kind of pitching the book. So the, so again, eight gifts of the heart, eight practices, uh, associated with each one of those gifts. And it's also keyed with the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount, all of that is kind of keyed together. And um, and what I suggest, you know, and I hope this is the case, I hope I haven't left some big gap, but I suggest that these eight practices kind of represent, you know, the, the basic set, you know, this, the, you know, it's like buying a toolkit. You know, and these these are the these are the key tools, and of course there are obviously permutations, but you know uh, the practice of silence, the practice of hospitality, the practice of generosity, um, the practice of praying imaginatively, lexio divina. I mean, these are the kinds of things that 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 I touch on, but fasting is one of them. And it, and again, I think yeah, for a lot of people, fasting has kind of gotten maybe an unsavory reputation because they associate it with with that that kind of negative side of asceticism. And, and, um, and I want to go back to lust before, before we finish, I want to go back because you quoted Jesus on me. So I, I have to, I have to say something about that, but um, well, let me just go ahead and say it. So like we're talking about asceticism, there's like a, a good side and a shadow side, you know, earlier in this talk, I was saying we need to rehabilitate lust, you know, and then you quoted Jesus saying, well, what about lusting in your heart? But again, I think Jesus is talking about that shadow lust, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and, and that, you know, that I'm talking about lust for life, kind yeah. of, you know, the, 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 
the, the sacred arrows, Jesus is reminding us that there can be a shadow arrows, the mm-hmm. arrows that wants to consume, the arrows mm-hmm. that wants to exploit, the arrows that is um, that leads to things like prostitution and child abuse and those kinds of things. So yeah, you know, Jesus is right to say, hey, we got it, we gotta stay away from that, we gotta heal that, we gotta, we gotta inject something higher and purer into that world. And then I'm saying, but yeah, don't throw the erotic baby out with the lustful bathwater. You know, there still has to be that that sacred lust, that 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 godly lust, if if we can say such a thing. Right. Okay, back to asceticism, back to fasting. So you know, one of the things I talk about in the book, I, I really begin with kind of the Catholic, just contemporary Catholic teachings about about um, fasting that you find during Lent, you know? And, and I mean, Lent for Catholics is easy compared to Ramadan. You know, they, they, all you Catholics that are listening, you've got it easy. Go talk to your Muslim friends. Because <laughs> in, in Lent, basically, you're, you're asked to ha- practice some sort of self-denial. You know, the classic giving up chocolate, giving up beer, you know, that kind of, some sort of self-denial. Uh, fasting on two days, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, and then abstaining from meat on Fridays. And it's, you know, it's, like I say, it's a relatively mild practice. The good news about that is that I don't think fasting has to be some sort of heroic macho, you know, I'm gonna go 50 days without food. Um, you know, number one, you could really hurt yourself. Uh, number two, you know, bringing that kind of machismo into, into the spirituality, again, it just becomes ego enforcing mm-hmm. rather than ego releasing. So, you know, so this idea of starting out small, you know, maybe one day a month you skip a meal, you know, and, and, and I should also mention, you know, um, that obviously anything like that, if there are any health concerns, you know, talk to your doctor, talk to your dietitian, you know, don't do anything that, that is going to be harmful. This is never meant to harm your body. But, but assuming you, you can safely do it, skip a meal one day a month. Or, or even, you know, once a quarter or once a year, go an entire day, 24 hours with nothing but juice or nothing but water. Mm. And, and then pay attention. So the key is really listening to your body during this process, noticing the hunger, noticing the appetite, noticing the rumbling and the tumbling, you know, that kind of thing. And then praying into that and praying into what does it mean to be a person who hungers? Mm or a person who thirsts? How does my physical hunger for the meal that I've skipped, how does that teach me about the existential hunger I have for God or for love or for justice or for relationship or for belonging, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's like letting your body teach you through that, through that small fast, mm-hmm. you know, that one meal fast or that one 24-hour fast. And I think, you know, just taking those baby steps into it can be a profoundly spiritually enriching experience. And then to complete the circle, take the money that you saved mm-hmm. by not eating that meal and, and use it in service of those in need. You know, make a donation somewhere, buy something for a homeless person, go buy a meal, the, the homeless person a meal, and sit and talk to them while they eat you know, so that it's a person-to-person connection. You're not just doing charity to someone, mm-hmm. but you're actually engaging, engaging with another human being whose circumstances are different and who, and who could really benefit from your generosity. That becomes part of the fasting, fasting discipline as well. So that would be my invitation for yeah. somebody who would want to explore that, that ancient spiritual practice. We know Jesus fasted. Mm-hmm. We know many, many other spiritual teachers 
fasted. Jesus himself said, hey, fasting will be part of your spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. So I think it's something that we, we should take him at his word and explore. Yeah. Carl, thank you again for, for exploring your, your book, Eternal Heart, with us. Um, I'll put a link down in the show notes for, for everyone to purchase it once it's released or pre-order it. Carl, where can they, where can they find your work? Well, the easiest, um, yeah, of course, I'm on social media, you know, so you can just you know, Google me. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's always my name, pretty much. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Goodreads, um, Instagram, you know, all of the above. But my website, uh, and it comes from the Gaelic word for soul friend, Anamkara, Anamkara.com. It's the Gaelic spelling. A lot of people know the Irish spelling from the, the book by John O'Donoghue. But the, the Scots Gaelic spelling, A-N-A-M-C-H-A-R-A.com. That's my website. And again, you can find links to all of my books and my blog and uh, you know, my, links to my podcast and so forth. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again, Carl. Oh, thank you. It's been a privilege. Bye now.